Uh, I'm going to pray to prepare our hearts to hear God's word read and then preached. So let's pray. Uh, God, we praise you. We thank you for Jesus, the greatest name. Lord, we know that our hearts often go astray. And so we just take a moment now to confess our own sin before you in the quietness of our own hearts. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful gospel. We thank you that through Jesus we can have complete forgiveness and new life. Uh, we pray for your help now as we hear your word. Please open our hearts to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Miriam's now going to read for us from John chapter 12. So thanks, Miriam. John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Hi Victor Harbour, it's great to be with you, even at a distance. Greetings from bright and sunny London. These are strange times that we find ourselves in, aren't they? And I'm sure it's the case there, as it is here, that there's lots of talk about leadership and control and protection. And so as we spend these few minutes looking at John chapter 12 together, I hope you can take great encouragement and assurance from our King Jesus, who is a new kind of king with a new kind of kingdom which comes about in a new and completely different way. We miss you lots. We think very fondly of Trinity Church Victor Harbour, the many friends we have there and the ministry that we've shared together. I think nothing would give me greater joy than to know you're still pressing onwards even in these uncertain times pressing onwards with the good news of Jesus, looking for the new opportunities to share the hope that we have that these strange times have given. We're praying for you all. We look forward to seeing you very soon. It is really great to be with you, uh, even online. I'm so pleased are you able to join us? Let me pray as we look at God's word together. Father God, we thank you that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness through your great and precious promises that you have made known to us in your word. Please may we hear you speak now that we might be changed, that we might have great confidence in your power and your goodness. And may we know you in Jesus Christ, your Son. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. I know it's hard for us 
to imagine now, but once upon a time, the streets of London were packed with crowds. Actually, it was really just only a week ago, wasn't it? But I mean a time when one of the largest crowds ever assembled in our city lined the streets of London. It was the 2nd of June, 1953, and the occasion was the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. It's estimated that three million people turned out, no social distancing required. Many had even slept on a footpath the night before, all in the hope of catching a glimpse of the Queen as she went past on her way to be crowned. She was wearing the George IV state diadem, which is made up of more than 1,300 diamonds. Her train, her robe, was over six metres long. The Buckingham Palace staff assembled to see her off on the short journey to Westminster, accompanied by over 250 church, commonwealth and military leaders, who were then joined in a procession by over 30,000 other people in a pageant that took two hours to pass by. That is quite some way to welcome your monarch, isn't it? It's immediately obvious there are both similarities and differences to the way King Jesus is welcomed into Jerusalem in about 33 AD. There's a crowd, much celebrating, symbols of the nation, but also a donkey. John, the eyewitness, records the next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. God's King has come. There's already a huge crowd in Jerusalem for the festival, that is the Passover, and they've heard that this Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead is going to be there. And so they go to meet him. The most pressing need that people felt, the problem they're powerless against, death, this guy has a cure for. And so there's a crowd. Imagine today, word gets around. Someone in London has a cure for COVID-19. That draws a crowd. The Passover was the greatest of the festivals in ancient Israel. It celebrated God's miraculous rescue of Israel from slavery in Egypt when God judged the sin and wickedness of the Egyptians, but his judgment passed over his people, though those who had trusted in his rescue plan, symbolized by painting their homes over the doorways with the blood of a lamb. The historian Josephus says that Jerusalem, normally a city of something like 50,000 people at Passover time, would swell to over two and a half million. Now, he's probably padding the figures a little bit, but there's no doubt there were huge crowds in Jerusalem at this time. If you remember, we talked about the Maccabees a few weeks ago, those Jewish freedom fighters from about 160 years before Jesus. Well, since their day palm branches had become a symbol of Jewish nationalism. Some Sundays I wear my St George's Cross cufflinks given to me before I left Australia by a man in my former church who happened to grow up just around the corner from here. I wear them so there's no doubt about my allegiance. But palm branches were a bit more subversive than a St George's Cross or a Union Jack. Palm branches were a bit more like the umbrellas in the Hong Kong protests of 2014. They weren't just about saying, this is who we are. They said something about, this is what we want. And certainly the crowd tells us exactly what they want. 
and what they thought they were doing. They quote from their Bible. They're crying out the words of Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Hosanna means save us. And if at some point you look up Psalm 118 verse 25, you'll see that's how it's translated there. When the Old Testament pilgrims sung that psalm, they were crying out, Hosanna, save us, praying to God to work his saving purposes out for his people. When life was uncertain, when the future wasn't clear, when there seemed plenty of reason to be anxious and remembering that God had promised, had acted in the past to save his people and promised to act in the future in those ways again, they were great things to be reminded of. To cry Hosanna is to cry to God for salvation. It's asking, God, please act now for salvation like you acted in the past, like in that dramatic rescue from Egypt. Or to put it in slightly less refined terms, the crowd are shouting out, what do we want? Salvation. When do we want it? Now. See, this isn't just a polite Christian gathering. This is an occupied and oppressed people welcoming Jesus as the one they think is going to save them and their nation. There's no mistaking the fact that the crowd welcome Jesus as their king or they want him to be their king and they're expecting him to save them, to save them from the Romans, to give them their freedom. But they don't think that Jesus is just any old king. When Psalm 118 was first written, those words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they were words that the pilgrims spoke to each other. It was a way of saying, isn't it great that we can be here, we can gather together in God's name. But by the time of Jesus, no one sang that psalm anymore, meaning it's great that you and I can be here. It always meant, won't it be great when God's king comes? And you can see that's exactly what the crowd are thinking here, because they cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and then they tack on a bit, that's not from the psalm, blessed is the king of Israel. This is a royal entry. The king has arrived for his coronation. The Messiah has come. God's long-promised king has arrived. And we think that's great. God's king has come. God's people recognize that their king has come. They call out to Jesus as he passes by on the road. We want your salvation. We want you to be king. We want you in charge of our lives. You're the one God has promised. And yet, within a week, this same crowd are crying out, Crucify him, crucify him. The crowds imagine that if Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead, then he's the kind of guy they want as their king. But sadly, they don't understand what that means. The salvation he offers isn't the salvation they want, and so they very quickly turn on him. The crowd's welcome of Jesus is all about salvation, And Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem is all about salvation. He's about to say in the next section, the hour has come. That is, it's time for his death as the true Passover lamb, as both judgment and salvation play out side by side. But it's not the salvation the crowds are looking for. They're crying, Hosanna, save us. But they have no idea what they're really asking. I mean, they they want to be saved. But Jesus doesn't bring the salvation they're looking for. The enemy that he has come to defeat is not the enemy they're most afraid of. And it made me wonder, what do we think of the salvation that Jesus offers? 
Do we think Jesus offers salvation from adversity? That means we'll never face a tough time. Do we think that Jesus offers salvation from opposition and hostility? Salvation from sickness? From COVID-19? What if Jesus walked into London today and people recognised that he had some kind of power, power over sickness and death? There would be a crowd like this, wouldn't there? But if Jesus said what you really need saving from is something much, much worse than what you're afraid of and, and what's put you into lockdown now, well, I think the week after his arrival in London would look a lot like the week after his arrival in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Yes, Jesus can offer temporary salvation from any of those things that I mentioned. Jesus can heal the sick. Jesus can raise the dead. We've seen him do it in John's Gospel already as he demonstrates his identity and confirms his message. But those things are not what Jesus has promised us. That's not the salvation that he's come to bring. That's not what the Passover and all God's other great rescue missions in the Old Testament were there to point people forward to. The salvation that Jesus offers is salvation from sin. Every single one of us has lived in God's world with no regard for God. We push God to the very edge of our lives and then beyond, even though every single thing we have comes from him. That's what the Bible calls sin. And so you can be a good person, a nice person, and still be a sinner. In fact, we all are. And the penalty for sin is death and separation from God and his blessings forever. But the rescue Jesus provides is a rescue from sin and its consequences. And because it's a rescue from ultimate death, it's also a rescue from hopelessness. It's a rescue from fear. It's a rescue from worry in the face of the unknown. In fact, it's a rescue that more and more obviously we need today. But do you see the danger? Why does it matter what salvation Jesus brings? What does it matter if it's salvation from sin or if someone else says it's salvation from ever getting sick? Why do we have to understand the salvation that Jesus offers? Well, firstly, because you can't receive something from Jesus if he's not offering it to us in the first place. But also look what happens to the crowds who think that Jesus is offering temporary, short-term salvation. When they realize he's not offering the kind of salvation they want, what do they do? They turn on him. They kill him. They deny he's their king at all. By chapter 19, the crowd are crying out, We have no king but Caesar. How quickly their allegiance changes when they realize Jesus isn't holding out what they thought he was. What salvation do we think Jesus offers us? We don't want to be like the crowd and ignore what Jesus says because we're hanging out for something else, some cheap imitation only to then turn on Jesus when we realize we don't want the salvation he offers. So God's people want salvation when their king comes. But even now there's a hint, well it's more than a hint, it's a blatant statement that Jesus is a different kind of king. King Jesus comes to his people in humility. See from verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Daughter Zion was a way of speaking about the city of Jerusalem and her inhabitants. And so here's a promise that a king would come to Jerusalem seated on a donkey. Typically, an ancient king would enter the city for his coronation on horseback or riding in a chariot. 
Queen Elizabeth rose to, rode to her coronation in the gold state coach, which weighs four tonnes, is pulled by eight Windsor Grey horses, and is worth something in the order of £14 million. Riding to your coronation in that, as every British monarch has since George VI, that says something about who you are and what kind of ruler you want to be. Well, the same with Jesus. The way he arrived into the city declares what kind of king he is. And there's nothing grand about riding on a donkey, is there? If you're trying to make a good impression on someone, if you want them to think well of you, arriving on a donkey is probably not the way you would go about it. First day back after coronavirus working from home, if you turn up at work on a donkey, people will probably encourage you to keep self-isolating. Plenty of people rode donkeys in Jesus' day. It's not that it was an uncommon mode of transport. It was just very basic. It's the second-hand bike bought on Gumtree. But it's more than basic. You'll see that John tells us, and the NIV Bibles have a footnote there, that Jesus chooses this slightly unusual mode of transport because of what was written in the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah brought God's word to his people in Jerusalem about 500 years before Jesus. And in chapter 9 of Zechariah's prophecy, God speaks about what will happen when his king, the Messiah, comes to be with his people. And unlike every other king, God's king comes in humility, riding on a donkey. Here was God's promise that Israel's king would come not on a war horse, not with all the pomp and ceremony of a king who wants to be recognized as something great. No, God's king would come on a donkey. In fact, Zechariah 9 goes on to say that this king will proclaim peace to the nations. This is not your average king, is it? This is the rule of the Prince of Peace being promised. Jesus is deliberately and self-consciously choosing to fulfill the Zechariah prophecy. Jesus doesn't choose a donkey because that's all there was available. You know, the tube is shutting down at the moment. Maybe Uber's completely booked out. The only thing left is a donkey. No, Jesus chooses the donkey because he is claiming to be the Messiah as promised in Zechariah 9. Actually, the expectation that the Messiah would come on a donkey goes back even further than Zechariah. Way back in Genesis 49, Jacob, the father of the nation of Israel, is blessing his family as he dies, before he dies. And he speaks of the ultimate ruler who will come from Judah, the one to whom all authority belongs, a leader who will rule over all the nations. And this great worldwide ruler, he comes on a donkey, this lowly animal. Way back before Israel was a nation and it was just one bloke's family, God had already revealed something of the character of the king whose coming was still centuries into the future. This king would be humble, peaceful, gentle. Jesus could have walked. He'd have done this trip dozens of times before. But he's choosing to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey to show just what kind of king he is. He is a Zechariah 9 kind of king. A king who comes in humility, a king who brings peace. And this is the thing that we need to understand about King Jesus. He is a new kind of king with a new kind of kingdom. A kingdom that comes about in a new and completely unexpected way. To us, a donkey means big ears and a funny noise. To Israel, a donkey meant peace and humility. And of course, we know how this story continues that by Friday this king dies to usher in his kingdom. Tellingly, in the very next verse of Zechariah's prophecy, God had said just how this kingdom would come about. 
As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. This kingdom is ushered in with a sacrifice. The king himself sheds his blood so that others can enter and enjoy the benefits of the kingdom. Just cast your mind back through the kings of history. Call to mind kings and rulers you're aware of today. Do any of them rule like this? I mean, our, our queen is pretty great as far as rulers go, isn't she? She's probably pretty close to the top of the list. But even she, on that summer's day back in 1953, didn't walk from her coronation to, say, Tower Hill to die for the people who had just welcomed her as queen. Jesus' rule is different. And he came not to be honoured by his people, but to die for his people. And there's much more about this in the following parts of this chapter, which we'll see in the coming weeks. But let's not miss the fact that if this is Jesus' leadership, if God had been promising for centuries that this is the kind of ruler the Messiah is going to be, and if Jesus deliberately chooses to act in fulfilment of those promises, then the leadership of those who follow Jesus can only ever be in the same mould. Now, this isn't a passage about Christian leadership. It's a passage about Jesus. But since he's, uh, he is our example, he sets the culture for his kingdom. We don't want to miss the lesson here. God's king comes in humility. And so it would seem very odd indeed if we thought that humility was unnecessary for us. Sure, Jesus came on a donkey. But I expect the gold state coach. I expect to be recognised and lauded and put up on a pedestal. Jesus deliberately chooses for humility and peace to be the markers of his kingdom. Leaving us in no doubt what our life under the leadership of King Jesus will look like. But Jesus' disciples don't understand all this yet. They see it all unfolding before them, but John tells us, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. The disciples didn't realise that Jesus was riding into Jerusalem in fulfilment of that prophecy in Zechariah 9. And most significantly, that middle phrase of verse 16, they didn't realise that these things had been written about him. Now, John's not having a go at the disciples, of which he was one, remember. He's just telling the truth. They didn't understand. And this is one of the many pieces of evidence as to why we can have great confidence in the eyewitness testimony of the New Testament. If John was making this stuff up, or even if he was just giving it a bit of a polish to make the Christian message sound more appealing or more compelling, what would he do here? Well, I can tell you what I would do if I was trying to convince people of the truth of what I'd witnessed and why they could trust it. I would write, and immediately it dawned on them, first Clayton and then the others, that this was all happening in fulfilment of what God had promised through the prophet Zechariah. If you're making stuff up or trying to put a better spin on it, that's what you'd write. The fact that John is willing to tell the truth, even when it means painting him and the other disciples in a not quite very good light, gives us reason to be confident he is in fact telling the truth. But he's doing more than just telling the truth about the disciples not understanding. He's teaching us the doctrine of scripture. He's teaching us how the Bible fits together. John, writing in the last quarter of the first century AD, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, He's teaching us how to read the Bible. In fact, we learn here what the Bible is. Zechariah 9 was written about Jesus. 
John says, and the things that were written had been done to him. That is done to him as the king, done to him because he's the Messiah, done to him because Zechariah 9 and Psalm 118 were about him in the first place. See, I could choose to act in fulfillment of these verses in Zechariah 9, couldn't I? Now, I don't own a donkey, but I looked up animalco.co.uk and they will hire me a donkey. They hire them to Disney and to Harrods and to the BBC. And so for a small fee, once we're no longer being discouraged from unnecessary travel, I could ride up into Westminster on a donkey, proclaiming myself to be the king promised in Zechariah 9.9. They also hire out reindeer, penguins and alpacas if you wanted something from a slightly different angle. But do you see that me choosing to act in the way described in Zechariah 9 communicates what I'm trying to say about myself, that I think I'm the king, that I want humility uh, to be a symbol of my kingdom, that I'm not a warrior. It would communicate lots of other things about me as well, I'm sure. But just because I choose to act in a way that fulfills those words doesn't mean those words were written about me in the first place. But John says they were written about Jesus. Jesus didn't just take those things and apply them to himself. They were always about Jesus. They were written about him. It doesn't matter how many other people hire a donkey from Animal Co. and ride it up into town. Zechariah 9 will always have been about Jesus. And the same thing is true about that passage from Genesis 49. And all of the Old Testament, Jesus isn't God's king because he happens to fit the prophecies. The prophecies speak about him because he is God's king. And it was only later, after Jesus was glorified, that is, after his death and resurrection, that the disciples understood that Zechariah had been speaking about Jesus all along. Already in his Gospel account in chapter 7, John's linked the idea of Jesus being glorified with the giving of the Spirit. So it's likely that's what he's thinking of here. It's not just hindsight, but the Spirit helped the disciples understand the Scriptures. So at the time this is all happening, John doesn't quite understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise of salvation. But by the time he's writing, he does. Which is why I think John misquotes the Old Testament there in verse 15. That's not what John's Bible actually said. Of course, he doesn't really misquote the Old Testament. He, he adds his own interpretation. And remember, he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit as he writes, so he's allowed to. But in verse 15, the verse quoted from Zechariah actually reads, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Remember talking to the people of Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly. John says, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. There's not a single copy of the book of Zechariah where it's translated that way. John has chosen these words himself. Because now that he understands that the Old Testament prophets were speaking about Jesus as the Holy Spirit carried them along and gave them words, he realises that even though the crowds don't fully know what they were crying out for, Jesus did know. Jesus knew that he was the king of Zechariah 9.9. Jesus knew that he was the king of Zechariah 9.11, the one who says, Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Jesus knows that the salvation the crowd need only comes by the shedding of blood. He knows the road to salvation is awful and terrifying, that on the way to salvation it looks like evil triumphs. So John interprets Zechariah 9.9, Do not be afraid, 
what looks like God's king losing control, what looks like evil and Satan gaining the upper hand, God's plan of salvation is working out exactly as it is written. And in fact, that's a timely word for us, even though we know how the story continues. If we've read to the end, we're probably not sitting here, heart in our mouth, afraid that God's purposes are going to come crashing down when Jesus gets crucified. We're possibly not like the person hearing this for the first time. And yet, how wonderful to be told, do not be afraid, because here is your king. How wonderful to be reminded that Jesus is the antidote to fear. How wonderful to hear that because of this king, about whom the Old Testament is written, to whom at points we have no reason to be afraid. Afraid of evil. Afraid of death. Afraid of Satan. Afraid of coronavirus. Afraid of national turmoil. How brilliant that because Jesus is God's chosen king who brings salvation at the cost of his own blood, we don't need to be afraid. If we trust in Jesus, we've been reconciled to God. We're saved, forgiven, welcomed. Do not be afraid. I can think of no better news in a time of upheaval and anxiety and uncertainty that is unprecedented in my lifetime at least than to be reminded that since Jesus is the king who makes peace with God through his blood, we do not need to be afraid. King Jesus is on his throne. We do not need to be afraid. And so, very briefly and to close, as we've seen time after time in John's Gospel, there are two responses to Jesus. The first is one of welcome. Verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. This crowd had been with Jesus. They'd seen the signs, especially the sign of raising Lazarus, demonstrating as it did Jesus' claim to be the resurrection and the life. And they do what people do when they encounter the power of Jesus. They talk. They continue to spread the word, verse 17. That is the natural outworking of an encounter with the resurrection and the life, a desire for others to hear. Charles Spurgeon, the London Baptist pastor, Once asked in a Sunday morning sermon, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself. Be sure of that. He went on, what is the most natural plan to use for the salvation of others, but to bear your own personal testimony? Now, he's not saying unless you've told three people about Jesus this week, you're not a Christian. But that people who have truly met Jesus and been changed by Jesus speak about Jesus. And usually part of that is to speak of their own experience of him being the resurrection and the life, which is what's happening here. Notice, though, that the response to this evangelism is not widespread and deeply rooted revival. Verse 18, many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. That's a distinctively low-key response, isn't it? There's no evidence of belief. There's no trust in the salvation Jesus brings. Just a crowd who went out to meet him. And we've just seen that a crowd going out to meet Jesus can completely misunderstand him and his mission. It's positive. People are hearing about Jesus. Some will come to faith. God draws them to himself through Jesus' words. But let's not mistake people being intrigued by Jesus or interested in him with wholehearted obedience and discipleship. And so we shouldn't be discouraged if our evangelistic efforts don't immediately have the effect of transformed lives in those we speak to. But there is also a response of rejection. 
as there has been throughout Jesus' ministry. See verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Again, an encouragement to us that even during Jesus' earthly ministry, simply hearing the good news isn't enough to make someone a follower of Jesus. There will be some, sadly, who persist in rejection and unbelief. Rather than be shaken out of their complacency and rejection by the response of the crowds to what Jesus is doing, even though there's now enormous plausibility in wanting to hear Jesus' words because everyone else is doing it, they can only see that for Jesus to increase in influence means for them to decrease. Look how the whole world has gone after him. There's a note of irony that in the very next verse some Greeks want to meet Jesus. There is very much a sense that as of this moment the whole world has begun to go after Jesus. Now lots of us would think that's great. But for those who are opposed to Jesus it's annoying and disturbing. See our assessment of Jesus makes such a difference to how we evaluate things. It makes such a difference to how we respond to him. It makes a difference to how we look at our world, how we look at our city through our closed doors, whether we think we have reason to fear or to maybe not be afraid, whether we think coronavirus is the worst possible thing we could face or whether meeting Jesus, God's king, having ignored him, is far worse. You see, Zechariah the prophet goes on to describe Jesus arriving again, this time as king over the whole earth. We don't want to be unprepared to welcome King Jesus on that day. But the good news is we have a chance to respond today. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus, our King, that he is a humble and gentle ruler. We thank you that he died for his people, bringing the salvation we so desperately need. Thank you that we do not need to fear anything, nothing in life, not death, not coronavirus, not national turmoil, because King Jesus is on his throne. Amen. Thank you, Clayton. Uh, a great reminder of our King Jesus and what he has done for us. Um, friends, I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer now, so please do join with me as I pray. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you for this wonderful news of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that through this time, the good news of Jesus will continue to go out and transform many people's lives. Uh, we pray that many people will come and see Jesus for who he is uh, and receive him as both their Saviour and their Lord. Um, we pray for our friends at the Church Missionary Society uh, uh, who are seeking to share Jesus with the world. We pray especially for Mike and Karen Rowe in South Africa. Arthur and Tammy Davis in Tanzania, and Shane and Naomi Ruby recently returned uh, with us now uh, from Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Lord, we pray that you might fill them with your peace and your joy. Uh, please, uh, we pray for their work that it might bear good fruit for your gospel. Lord, we also pray for our local leaders here, for our uh, local government and state and federal bodies. Uh, Lord, we ask that um, they would have real wisdom as they seek to guide us through this time. Please, may they um, make decisions with both justice and mercy. Uh, and we pray especially uh, that you'll guide them and give them wisdom now. Father, we pray for our um, 
uh, partner churches in the Trinity Network, especially uh, our friends in Trinity Church Hove and Golden Grove and at Unley. Lord, please watch over them. Uh, please help them to grow in their love for you and for each other and for the world through this time. So we thank you for the chance we have to gather together. We thank you that we are united in Christ, uh, even though we're distant physically. Uh, we thank you, Father, for the wonderful gospel that holds us together. And we pray that you might strengthen us in it today and send us out uh, in the power of your spirit. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.